imagine for one second what a speech from a former president normally looks like. Maybe it's the opening of a presidential library. Maybe it's a university commencement. You get the idea. And then there are speeches from our most recent former president. Before I show you his speech today, I have to warn you, it is vulgar. But we are going to play it uncensored for reasons that I will outline after we play you this sound. So prepare yourself. I'm sorry, I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Terrible. That was the former president of the United States, President Donald Trump, in New Hampshire today, calling the multiple criminal indictments against him very serious charges. That was Trump characterizing those indictments as BS. Now, I'm not bringing this up just because Trump was unhinged in New Hampshire today, but because how unhinged Donald Trump is may actually substantively matter for these court cases. You might remember that last Friday after Trump posted on his social media website, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. After Trump posted that, special counsel Jack Smith asked the judge in the 2020 election case to issue what is known as a protective order, limiting what Trump can and cannot say publicly. And here was Trump today talking about that very same protective order. Crooked Joe now wants the thug prosecutor, this deranged guy, to file a court order taking away my First Amendment rights so that I can't speak. So listen to this. We don't want you to speak about the case. The case. I will talk about it. I will. They're not taking away my First Amendment rights. I will talk about it. I will. Now, we should make clear here that this isn't Jack Smith saying that Trump can't talk about this case at all. This is Jack Smith asking very specifically that Donald Trump not be allowed to do anything that could intimidate or threaten anyone involved in this case. And we do not have to imagine what that might look like. Trump's legal team has already laid it out. In its own filing yesterday, Trump's defense team literally crossed out, strike through text, certain lines of the prosecution's proposed order. The defense doesn't think Trump should be barred from publicly releasing things, including recordings, transcripts, interview reports, and related exhibits of witnesses. He will talk about it. He will. So today, the judge in that case, Tanya Chutkin, scheduled a hearing on Friday at 10 a.m. in Washington, D.C. to settle this matter. But my question is, what happens if Trump is ordered by a federal court not to talk about something like this, but then just does it anyway? Presumably, there's some legal peril in Trump's strategy here, but that does not seem to be stopping the man. In fact, on top of all of this, there might possibly be more indictments to come. Today, the same grand jury that indicted Trump last week was spotted meeting again in D.C. Grand juries cannot continue meeting on indictments that have already been charged, so this would be something else. This would be something new. And that comes after we got this very great reporting from Betsy Woodruff Swan at Politico. On Monday, Jack Smith's prosecutors had a closed-door interview with a friend of Rudy, Bernie Carrick. And they asked Mr. Carrick multiple questions about how Trump's PAC, Save America, raised enormous amounts of money in the weeks between the election and January 6th. 
You may remember that Trump raised more than $250 million in the eight weeks after the 2020 election. And he did so by running ads like this one. America deserved an honest election. This is what they got. Suitcases of ballots added in secret in Georgia. Dead people voting in Wisconsin. A money for vote scheme in Nevada. Poll watchers denied access in Pennsylvania. Faulty ballot drop boxes. And clerks facing felony charges in Michigan. The evidence is overwhelming. For months, well before Trump's latest indictment came out, we had seen report after report that special counsel Jack Smith was investigating Trump's use of false claims about the election to raise money. We even had reporting that Smith was particularly interested in seeing if any of that activity amounted to wire fraud. And now it looks like we have confirmation that part of Jack Smith's investigation, the part that deals with potential wire fraud, campaign finance fraud, that that part is very much ongoing. The special counsel may very well not be done here. And that may be a good call on Jack Smith's part because the former president is not done lying. There was never a second of any day that I didn't believe that that election was rigged. It was a rigged election. It was a rigged election and it was a stolen, disgusting election. And this country should be ashamed. Joining us now are Politico national correspondent and MSNBC contributor Betsy Woodruff-Swan and former federal prosecutor and co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, Andrew Weissman. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Andrew, are we going to see a superseding indictment here or do you think this grand jury action is about the co-conspirators who were unnamed in the initial indictment? Well, I think that the odds of seeing a superseding indictment in the January 6th case against Donald Trump are low. Um, and that's because it's clear that um, the prosecution wants that to go to trial and they want a trial date and they want it to be either before the election Fast or tracked. even before the Republican nomination. But what we could see is, to your point, the um, co-conspirators, I think it's highly likely that some, if not all, will be indicted. But that can be in a separate case. And then on the financial piece, that also could be a separate set of charges. And that doesn't necessarily need to go all the way up to Donald Trump to bring that case. Remember, that case is very similar to the cases that we saw against Steve Bannon and his cohorts in connection with Build the Wall, which was basically just a fraud case, yeah. which is you raise money saying X when you really meant not X. Um, and you could have the same thing. What I find really interesting, if that proceeds, is that can lead to pretrial forfeiture we did this in the Mueller investigation. And so you could end up with that pack um, with the money being frozen. The Save America pack. Exactly. And what is it being used for? Legal bills. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. We take it on the road. Wait <laughs> yes. a second. I mean, that's deeply problematic, given the fact that this is effectively the piggy bank for all the defendants that are thus far towing the line for Donald Trump. This is where their lawyers, we think, are being paid from. So to have those funds frozen would have significant legal implications. Yeah, I mean, there could be other funds that, that are available, but if there are funds, funds that have been um, obtained by fraud, uh, and obviously the government would have to prove that, um, there's, there's a showing that needs to be made, but you can get pretrial um, seizure orders. Um, we did that in the special counsel investigation. Obviously, that all requires proof. It requires a court to do that. Um, but if this is where they're going, you can do that. And there doesn't have to be a charge against Donald Trump. It can be against 
the PAC itself. It could be against lower level people and still have both civil and criminal forfeiture. Um, Betsy, one of the reasons we think that this is the grand jury is hearing evidence related to possible campaign fraud is because Bernie Carrick, uh, who we mentioned in the lead and according to your reporting, was meeting with prosecutors on Monday. Can you tell us more about why Bernie Carrick may be the sort of Kevin Bacon of all of this, the person that connects the various spokes on the wheel? Yeah, he's a bit of a Forrest Gump-type character sure. here. He and Rudy Giuliani go way, way back to their days running uh, powerful offices within the city of New York. Bernie Carrick, of course, was the NYPD commissioner. He's been very close allies of Giuliani for decades now. And in that crazy window between Election Day 2020 and January 26th, Bernie Carrick very much worked hand-in-glove with Rudy Giuliani under him on that legal team that was trying to find any sort of evidence, any sort of pretext to make the case that the election had been stolen by Joe Biden. What we also know, based on a conversation that I had today with Bernie Carrick's lawyer, who was in the room with the special counsel's team for the interview that Bernie Carrick held with them earlier this week, is that Jack Smith's prosecutors were very interested in Save America, interested in who was making decisions about fundraising, and also interested in who was making decisions about how the money that the PAC raised was spent. When it comes to this fraud question, one thing people should just keep in mind based on public reporting going back for years now is that a real bone of contention between Rudy Giuliani and people in Trump's orbit was the fact that Rudy Giuliani actually hardly got paid during that window of time. Giuliani and his allies were pushing Trump in the month or two after Biden Biden's inauguration to help pay Giuliani for what he had done and to pay for the exploding legal bills that Giuliani was facing. So an outstanding question is not just were the Save America PAC fundraisers deliberately lying, potentially committing wire fraud in raising money for that entity, but also when they claimed that they were going to use that money, the money people gave very generously, these Trump small small dollar donors gave in that window when they when when they said they were going to use that money to contest the election. What do they actually do with it, and what does that mean from the standpoint of the laws governing campaign finance? Betsy, just really quick, I mean, from Tim Parlatore, who we've had on this program as recently as last week, is the lawyer in question here. He, there has not been the public suggestion that Bernie Carrick is going to be giving. Um, shall we say, damning evidence to the prosecution, but it sort of sounds like he might. That's right. I, I'm not aware of any indicators that Bernie Carrick's testimony was the sort of discussion that would have gotten Rudy Giuliani in trouble. But he's important, of course, because he just knows so much. When it comes to the question of filling in factual gaps, having somebody who was in the room for conversations, having someone who can explain all the minor characters who played important uh, but perhaps under underestimated roles in the machinations that Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell were involved in, Carrick himself provides that valuable insight. He is not indicated in Trump's indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator, but Without a doubt, he was very close and had detailed knowledge of the activities of Rudy Giuliani, who, of course, is one of those unnamed, unindicted co-conspirators in the indictment. Andrew, there were a lot of flies on the wall in and around the campaign and the White House. And the flies are coming into the, I mean, this metaphor is going to yeah, exhaust yeah. itself shortly. <laughs> but um, I, 
I do want to, I, before we end this segment, I do want to ask about this protective order because this very much remains, you know, unresolved. Yep. Judge Chutkin has said, you guys come in here on Friday. The Trump team didn't want to come in until next Monday. She sort of laid down the law. She's the judge. She is the judge. But I mean, I do wonder the behavior of Trump on the campaign trail today does not show a man that seems particularly concerned with the content of anything he's saying. He's as aggressive as he ever has been. What are the potential outcomes here? So so one thing I think it's really important for people to recognize and has not gotten a lot of attention is when you are out on bail, you do not have the same rights as the rest of us. Just remember, people await trial at times in jail. Right. You think that they, are, they don't sit there and go like, oh, it's restricting my liberty. Yeah, of course it is. That's what bail is. So to say, oh, it's restricting my First Amendment rights. That's right. And at times a judge can do that if it's necessary. So here the judge, I think, is going to be very concerned about the integrity of the judicial process. And what I mean by that is making sure that Donald Trump is not using his speech to threaten witnesses. Now, we saw that happen the day after the arraignment when he had sworn that he wasn't going to do that. He is out on bail on three cases. If I were the judge, that's the primary thing that I'd be worried about. And that's why the government, this may seem like a small skirmish. To me, it isn't. It really goes to making sure that witnesses, jurors, judges, judges, family members are not going to be harassed and threatened. And it doesn't mean that Donald Trump is going to do it himself, but he is certainly aware that his reckless talk leads to those consequences. And unfortunately, this country has seen examples of that. And we've talked about people like Ruby Freeman and her daughter. And we've talked about Paul Pelosi, FBI offices, um, the um, family members of Alvin Bragg, of Judge Mershan in New York, all of whom have been actual people who are victims of Donald Trump's mouth um, and saying things that he shouldn't. And that is the reason why you have this kind of protective order to make sure this doesn't happen. Well, and he continued on tonight. He posted to Truth Social going after Judge Chutkin, um, impugning her reputation. The the beat goes on, as it were. Uh, Betsy, thank you so much for that great reporting. Thanks for joining me tonight. Andrew Weissman, we're never really ever done with you, so please, please stay here for a few more minutes. We have a lot this evening. Ohio voters went to the polls today and chose to protect democracy from an all-out assault. The breaking election results are coming up. Plus, when one of Trump's defense attorneys tried out a brand new defense on Fox News this weekend, was the judge watching? We're going to have more on that coming up next. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day, each morning in your inbox with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday.
If you were watching Fox News on Sunday night, you may have heard Donald Trump's former attorney, a man named Jim Trusty. You may have heard him offer up a novel theory about the classified documents case against the former president. There's a lot of shenanigans in terms of grand jury usage. You know, you don't do a grand jury investigation for a year only to move it to another district unless there's more to the story. There'll be litigation, I assume, that relates to these issues of how the grand jury was used or, or abused. Uh, but it's certainly, a, 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 again, new territory when DOJ shifts an investigation at the last minute to an entirely different venue. OK, so that's Mr. Trusty floating the idea that the special counsel's use of a D.C.-based grand jury, the one that has heard this case for months, that that is somehow suspicious and that somehow prosecutors abused the use of this grand jury and that that abuse should be litigated before a judge. Now, enter Aileen Cannon, the U.S. District Judge overseeing that classified documents case down in Florida. The day after Mr. Trustee laid out that argument on Fox News, Judge Cannon issued this ruling with no prompting from Trump's defense team. She just did it on her own. Judge Cannon pointed to the prosecutor's use of an out-of-district grand jury, the one in Washington, D.C., to continue to investigate and or seek post-indictment hearings. And she deemed the use of that grand jury suspicious. Judge Cannon questioned the legal propriety of that move, and she ordered special counsel prosecutors to explain themselves by August 22nd so the issue may be litigated. Now, either there is a really unusual psychic connection between the Mar-a-Lago judge and one of Trump's former lawyers, or back with us is Andrew Weissman, former member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team, co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast, and the man, credit where credit is due, who came up with that theory that Judge Cannon's surprise ruling just might be related to Jim Trustee's on-air arguments the day before. Also joining us is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama and current professor of the University of Alabama, at the University of Alabama. Um, Joyce and Andrew, Andrew, let me just first start, because you're the person that put together this, this appearance on Fox News where Jim Trustee says, D.C. grand jury, Florida grand jury, these two things can't mix. And then Judge Cannon mysteriously coming out with the sort of mirror of that argument in one of her rulings. What's going on here? So first, regardless of how she got there, um, the fact of what she did is, to say the least, unusual. Um, she did it, as you noted, on her own. And it showed a fundamental misunderstanding of basic 101 criminal law yeah. as to how grand juries work, which is they can continue investigating um, ongoing crime of either an, an existing defendant or other defendants um, and, and other crimes that may be committed. So this is a classic case. It is also the case that you can bring a grand jury investigation in any district where the crime may have occurred. Remember, when you start an investigation, you don't even know if a crime has occurred or who did it or where it occurred. So you're allowed to go to many different districts where it could be the case, as long as you have a good faith basis. So this was such a fundamental misunderstanding. And what I was thinking about is where in God's green earth is she getting, getting this idea? Stuff. Because it's so off the charts from everything in the record. Why is she doing this? It's not like the litigants raised the issue. Yeah, She's doing it on her own. And it's so wrong. And then there you have Jim Trustee, the president's 
former president's former counsel raising you know this issue the night before and that morning she issues this so the the it's a real issue in terms of people who think that judge cannon may have learned her lesson and this might be cannon 2.0 she's really changed since the 11th circuit circuit struck her down twice this suggests not so not so this is still canon 1.0 yeah very much or just canon 0.0 beta testing (laughs) joyce what is i mean what are the implications here i mean does do the prosecutors face any kind of repercussions here or is this so unfounded and so for lack of a better term bonkers that nobody's going to really take it seriously i mean could could this affect the use could this affect any of the materials um, derived from uh, the closed-door testimony of the grand jury in Washington, D.C.? No, it won't have any impact on that grand jury investigation. Alex, I think bonkers is a pretty good word to use to describe this argument. And Andrew and I, Andrew, we may have even been in this situation at one point. It's not unusual to have different U.S. attorney's offices commencing investigation because both of them are seeing some form of a crime at the same time Both offices investigate until they bump into each other, and then they'll resolve the issue of which district will move forward with what charges. Nothing improper about having those grand juries operating um, at the same time. But beyond this, this idiosyncrasy that Andrew has pointed out in the argument that the judge raises, it's not just that she raises it, it's the context that she does it in. Because the government has asked for a Garcia hearing. That's a hearing into a conflict of interest between one of the defendant's lawyers and his his client. This is Walt Nauda's lawyer, and he represents some of the folks or has represented in the past folks who will be witnesses in this case. So the government asked the George, the judge to set what's called a Garcia hearing so that they could go into open court and put that on the record with the defendant present. Some defendants will hear that their lawyer has a conflict of interest and they might choose to reconsider that representation. You know, I don't want to be too suspicious here. I just find it to be passably odd that the judge has taken a motion that's supposed to be about one thing and she's come up with this crazy theory and instead she's trying to make it about that. So I'll throw a little bit of oxygen onto the flames of the argument that Andrew is making. (laughs) Well, please do, Joyce, because I think even to the layman, this seems deeply problematic. I mean, it's not just (laughs) it's. It's it's more than I mean, this is a judge who has not had almost any trial experience. She's very young and lots of young people with not a lot of experience do extraordinary things. But thus far, her batting average is not good. And is there cause to maybe ask for another judge at this point if you're a prosecutor on this case? So, Alex, it actually gets worse than what we've discussed so far, because the government submitted to her some information about these other uh, people who were cooperating to, for the Garcia hearing that Joyce talked about. And that was grand jury material. And the judge said, why was this submitted to me under seal? You didn't set out a basis and um, struck them from the record. The basis, I'm sure Joyce and I had the same reaction, which was after our jaws clattered to the ground. <laughs> the basis is grand jury secrecy. I mean, that is, again, 101. I mean, that is there is no more that you need to say. Um, And the second part is she then said something about where the other investigation was, which is also grand jury secrecy. So the government has to be thinking, 
what do we do at this point? Yeah. And Joyce, to that end, I mean, the thing that sort of rescued the special master debacle was the 11th Circuit, not known as a bastion of liberalism. Do you think somehow they get involved in this? I mean, there are plenty of Trump appointed judges on that, but they seem to understand the law in the way that in a way that Judge Cannon does not. So I think we know that the special counsel does not want to have to go to the 11th Circuit. He's trying to focus straight ahead, getting his case to trial. But that said, there are some things that happen where you can be forced to take an appeal to the 11th Circuit. And and it's a court that's well-versed in handling a very prompt emergency appeal. So I think we could possibly see an appeal here on the issue that Andrew has identified, this notion that she won't let them put evidence that has to do with grand jury proceedings into the record under seal. Again, that's a pretty standard thing to do. And they may have to appeal her, and an appeal like that would be a good time to raise the recusal issue if they're so inclined. But, you know, this is is not an inexperienced judge when it comes to the way of federal prosecutors, because before she became a judge, she was an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of Florida. She served in that appellate division. She knows how a grand jury works. It's tough to believe that this was just a simple mistake. Ooh, a little edge of nefariousness injected in the end right there. Andrew Weissman. Joyce Vance, no two better people to weigh in on this topic. Thank you guys both for your time and expertise, as always. Still more to come this evening. There is a new casualty in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' culture war, and that casualty's name is William Shakespeare. I will explain that coming up. Breaking news out of Ohio, where democracy itself just won. That's next. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. Tonight is a major victory for democracy in Ohio. The majority still rules in Ohio. We have some breaking news out of Ohio tonight where voters went to the polls in an election with just one single issue with a whole lot of implications. The Associated Press has now called the race. Ohio has rejected ballot issue one with about 57 percent of the state voting no. Now, that number is both about 52 percent of precincts reporting, according to unofficial results from the Ohio Secretary of State. Ballot issue one was a measure to raise the threshold for changing constitutional amendments. Essentially, it would have made those amendments harder to pass. In gerrymandered states, especially ballot referendums on constitutional amendments have become some of the only ways that voters can make their voices heard, especially when it comes to big ticket issues like reproductive choice. 
Not coincidentally, there is one such referendum on this November's ballot in Ohio, one that, if it passes, could protect abortion rights and stands a very good chance of passing, especially with the results we have tonight. And that is why Republicans in the state tried to make it harder to get those sorts of referendums passed. Now, there has been record-breaking turnout in this August election, which is somewhat ironic because earlier this year, state Republicans voted to eliminate August elections, citing the traditionally low turnout for elections at this time of year. But those very same Republicans changed their minds this summer because presumably that traditionally low turnout would have benefited them on this issue specifically. Having said that, as of last Friday, more than 578,000 people had already cast their ballots, which is more than twice the number of people who voted early for the 2022 primary. Joining me now is Katie Paris, founder of Red Wine and Blue, a group of suburban women working to counter right-wing extremism who also oppose ballot issue one. Ms. Paris, thanks for being here tonight. I suppose congratulations are in order. This is an issue that you guys fought hard for. Um, can you talk to me about what women were telling you about ballot issue one and what motivated them to go to the polls in Ohio, a state that is reddish, if not red entirely? Oh, well, women were very clear in their rejection of extremism in this election. And there's no doubt that our desire, that our demand to get our reproductive rights back is actually is a huge motivating force in this election. But voters, suburban women are who we represent. And it's just incredible to see these election results tonight. You know, counties in the suburbs that actually went for Republicans in the U.S. Senate and governor's race in 22 are voting overwhelmingly no tonight. And we're also even seeing that in our sort of exurban, more rural counties, too. It's just incredible. These counties, some of them, J.D. Vance won by 60, 70 percent. They are voting no to. And in my own county, Cuyahoga County, which is one of our urban counties where Cleveland is, but also has tons of suburbs, this is one of the places where we had to go big. And in 2022, our turnout just wasn't enough to carry the state. But we are seeing a dramatic difference tonight. Just turnout is blowing everyone out of the water, everyone's expectations. It is good to be an Ohioan tonight. And I think the ramifications are huge, not just for the rejection of extremism in Ohio, but Republicans, they have gone too far all across this country. It's not just Trump. And this is a big message against extremism tonight. Yeah. On, on that note, I mean, certainly abortion seems to be a driver that continues to bring Democrats, independents and some Republicans out to the polls. But this was beyond just that. These were sort of anti-democratic tactics that were being embraced to make it harder for vo voters to get their voices heard. And I wonder, you know, how that fit into, you know, the, the portfolio of reasons why people were going out. I'm wondering if you heard not just from women, but for in independents who understood this to be what it is, which was, again, a, a, a way of muzzling, if not censoring, the voices of, of Ohioans who have a tough time getting legislation passed, given the gerrymandered nature of the state. It was very blatant. At Red, Wine & Blue, you know, actually a third of our members are former Republicans and independents. And if Republicans keep trying things like this, those numbers are just going to continue to grow. This was absolutely not just Democrats rejecting extremism. This was independents and Republicans as well. It was so transparently a power grab and just going way, way 
too far. And, you know, not only that, I think that they really expected, hey, you know, we're just going to sneak this through. This will be a low turnout election. No one will notice. But then they saw these huge numbers coming out in early voting. So they cranked up their disinformation machine. It has been a shame to see what we have seen across the state in the last few weeks. There has been huge attempts to drive fear into the hearts of voters. Even my group and me personally, we've been targeted uh, as these targets of disinformation. But what we've seen tonight is that that doesn't work, that voters see through the disinformation. There has been backlash to that. I have had women across the state telling me that it has just motivated them not just to vote, but to reach out to their friends and to their family and make sure that everybody is voting no in this election. This is about our democracy. It's about our values. It's about being able to have a voice in our state. And that went way beyond any partisan lines. Can I ask, I mean, are you assuming, are you as bullish on the passage of uh, the uh, the ballot referendum in November that would enshrine a woman's right to choose um, into the state constitution? The, the numbers track almost evenly in terms of support for that with opposition to ballot issue one. Do you think that this is the, the same sort of um, turnout will be the case in November? I have never been more excited to vote yes in November. And that is what I am hearing from voters across the state tonight. You know, we were red, white and blue was a big part of this amazing coalition across the state collecting signatures. You might know we collected 710,000 signatures to put reproductive freedom on the ballot. That effort started in March. Every single voter that we spoke to, we said, OK, you're signing to put reproductive freedom on the ballot in November. But first, you got to vote no in August. Then and you get to vote yes in November. And we're just so, so excited for that opportunity tonight. And we know every poll shows, I mean, I don't trust every poll, but every poll from everyone shows that 57, 58, 59% of Ohio voters will support this reproductive rights amendment. I mean, some of these numbers are just incredible. 85% of independent women support the reproductive rights ballot initiative. So yes, I'm very excited. I'm proud to be an Ohioan tonight. And and I, I do expect good results in November. Well, congratulations on your work tonight. Katie Paris, founder of Red Wine and Blue. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. Still to come this evening. It is a comedy of errors, but it is not funny. Florida schools are bearing the brunt of Governor DeSantis's latest front in the culture wars. We're going to explain all that coming up next. How do you tame the taming of the shrew? That is a question for high school teachers in Hillsborough County, Florida, as they head back to class this Thursday. According to the Tampa Bay Times, English teachers there are preparing lessons for the new school year with only excerpts from William Shakespeare's works. If Hillsborough English students want to read a whole Shakespeare play, then they have to do it on their own time. And that is happening because of the new expansion of Florida's Parental Rights in Education Act, brought to you by Governor Ron DeSantis and also known as the Don't Say Gay Act. And that law tells schools to steer clear of content and class discussion that is sexual in nature, unless it is related to a standard such as health class. A Hillsborough County School District spokesperson told the Tampa Bay Times that they took that law into consideration when redesigning their lesson plans this year. And what they came up with was just teach the non-sexy parts of Shakespeare. 
not the whole plays. As the paper put it, in staying with the excerpts, the schools can teach about Shakespeare while avoiding anything racy, racy or sexual. So this means that Hamlet and Macbeth and maybe the most high school play of all time, Romeo and Juliet, none of them will be taught in their entirety. Just the excerpts so that high schoolers' minds will be shielded from 16th century innuendo like this. Come, you spirits that tend on mortal thoughts, unsex me here. Lady, shall I lie in your lap? No, my lord. I mean my head upon your lap. Aye, my lord. What do you think I meant country matters? I think nothing, my lord. It's a fair thought to lie between maid's legs. What's Montague? It is not hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. The guidance here is make it Shakespeare, but not. Hillsborough County School Board member Jessica Vaughn reacted to Governor DeSantis and the real effect of his war on woke. It feels that much of this is intentional, she said, in order to cause as much chaos in public education as possible so that the collapse of public education is swift and the agenda of education privatization can move forward with less obstacles. All of that is happening as the governor's presidential campaign is absolutely imploding. The latest on Team DeSantis is coming up next. If Donald Trump were to be found guilty by a jury, <laughs> where, where, where do you see this going? Uh, civil war. Civil war. People have had it. We've had it. That was a Trump supporter in New Hampshire today telling NBC News Vaughn Hilliard that if Trump is convicted, there would be civil war. Where have we heard this before? Hmm. Meanwhile, Trump's nearest competitors for the Republican presidential nomination continue to battle themselves. Just two weeks after Ron DeSantis laid off more than a third of his campaign staff, today the campaign is retrenching again. Messenger News was the first to report that Governor DeSantis has now replaced his 36-year-old campaign manager, who had no national campaign experience, with a 35-year-old political aide with no national campaign experience. DeSantis's new campaign manager, James Oatmeyer, previously served as the governor's chief of staff in Florida, where he was known for spearheading the state's disastrous anti-masking and anti-vaccine policies during the pandemic. So that's the DeSantis campaign. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence just announced that he has qualified for the Republican Party's first primary debate, which is later this month. It is cause for some celebration in Pence world. The former vice president is currently polling at 6%. Joining me now to make sense of all this is Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark. Tim, I loved your newsletter today. You have a novel theory about why some of these shall we call them underdogs, may remain in the race longer than would um, naturally make sense. Can you talk about that theory? Yeah, I, well, it's it's partially a theory, but it's partially based on what uh, DeSantis Super PAC staffer told me. And I, I kind of stopped short when, when he suggested that maybe that his candidates and some of these other candidates would stay in the race longer to amass delegates in the possibility that Donald Trump is 
convicted in jail, so ensconced in legal troubles that he could not accept the nomination. Uh, to me, this feels like it's the bargaining stage of uh, of accepting a loss, uh, and that it's happening rather early, before even the first debate. But the fact that these guys are even talking about this, I think, shows just how desperate the straits are. And sh- look, is there the, an outside chance that Donald Trump is in jail by next summer? Yeah, I guess, I guess so. And I, I think we would all love to grab the popcorn and watch a Republican convention floor fight with Donald Trump from, you know, fighting for his delegates from jail. But um, that seems like not maybe the best, the strongest position with which to fight the front runner. Right. If that's your strategy is to wait for the other guy to be in the orange jumpsuit. I mean, having said that, also, there's the mathematical reality. A lot of Republican early primary states are winner take all, are they not? Yeah, exactly. Uh, th- there are a lot that are going to take out. There are some proportional, uh, but uh, but Donald Trump's been changing that. He's working out of the state parties to make even more winner take all. So, no, I, there's no way that you can get to a majority this way. I, I think the thinking is right. Maybe we stay around because, you know, if there is a negotiation that has to happen, then we have a stronger hand. Again, I, this is all fantastical stuff. And I think that it mostly just speaks to like Donald Trump's strength and, and just how, how desperate these campaigns are and, and how few outs they feel like they have. I, and you mentioned Mike Pence, for example, and they flashed that poll. Vivek Ramaswamy, who I saw in Iowa along with DeSantis, he, he, he's a 37-year-old Hindu who, who's, who's claimed to fame is that he wrote Woke Inc. He's beating the sitting vice president. I mean, that tells you where the party voters are right now. They want somebody MAGA, and and, and Vivek is is trying to offer a pale, you know, imitation of Trump. And so I think that's why he's he's doing better. But I, you know, that's why these establishment guys are having to come up with these kind of cockamamie theories of how how it might land in their favor. You you know, Tim, you posted this picture of a DeSantis event, and I think it's Tama, Iowa. Can we pull that up? And. You did say not all of his events have been this empty, but I myself was shocked that he could not pack the hall. I mean, even with all of his campaign shakeups, this is a person who has a fairly sizable operation. You'd think his advance team might do something to make sure that that was packed. Were you surprised? I was. I, as somebody who spent three years in Iowa, I got to get it right. It's Tama, Iowa. And uh, but we're there at this place. And I'm not good at, at ca- crowd guessing, Alex. Uh, I, I never like to do that. But in this case, I got to count the crowd. There were 44 people that showed up. And, and it's, a, you know, kind of a big barn. And I, I took this picture. And it's like, why? Why are they doing this? Like, why are you having this? They have this massively funded super PAC. It's on the weekend. Uh, again, yeah, there were some other events that were better. But but going back to Ramaswamy, uh, later that same day, I saw Ramaswamy in an even smaller town two hours away with like triple the size of the crowd. It looked a lot better. I just think that this speaks to the problem that DeSantis is having, like ginning up any excitement for his campaign. When you, you know it's bad when you can actually count the crowd. Tim Miller, thank you for the great reporting and insight. That is our show for tonight. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.